Some of life's choices must be taken in faith. You will not know the outcome before you commit to a lifelong course. If you delay decision until all future consequences can be assessed and known, then no decision can ever be made. We must trust the guidance of the one who sees the end from the beginning, or else remain paralyzed, deprived of ever finding the risks or rewards of living by faith. I'd like to talk today about the dilemmas of life's ultimate choices. I remember when Brothers of Freer, the man who means so much to all of us today, had known us only for a few years. He was not part of us, and he was deeply troubled in considering what it might mean for an Israeli commando to become part of a nonviolent agrarian Christian people. As everyone does, he was thinking of all the hypotheticals of what could go wrong or what he might one day regret. Everyone wants some kind of certainty or assurance that everything will go right, that nothing bad will ever happen, that if they make a choice, it will be the right choice in that sense. When he finally asked to come to a full community meeting, I told Safir that he was welcome to come, but that he probably needed to understand the nature of our meetings first. For instance, I told him something like the following. There are no spectators, only participants. So when we come together, we're all extremely vulnerable because we give ourselves completely and wholeheartedly. A world built on the basis of economy and polity is marked by competition and even power struggles. In such a milieu, people develop certain social safeguards and personality shields to protect themselves from being vulnerable. But our social setting strives to be free of competition, free from all struggles for personal empowerment. Rather, we have committed to rid ourselves of such things so that we can become emotionally and spiritually vulnerable to one another and experience the empowerment only of love. You can understand then why it would not really benefit anyone if visitors came to such meetings merely to analyze and survey our vulnerability while remaining outside of it themselves. It would be like the discovery of physicists that there can be no objective observer of reality whose observations do not alter the nature of what he studies. It would almost be a form of voyeurism but we do want anyone to come who will fully participate with us. If you're ready to do so on that level, then you're welcome to come. He responded with candid honesty. I'm not ready for that yet. Then he asked his question about what if someone becomes part of the community and then things go wrong. I told him that I wanted to try to put my answer into a larger perspective, one that perhaps revealed a different meaning and purpose from what usually informs such decisions. Someone in a recent meeting, for instance, cited the passage from John's epistle. I write to you young men because you're strong. 
Implicit in what John says here is that a time must one day come when you men will no longer be young, and therefore neither will you still be strong in the same way. So what will you now do with this temporary strength that you currently still possess? How are you going to use it? How will you apply it? Because you're only going to have it for a very short time, relatively speaking. In a similar way, I answered Brother Zafir's question by saying, Well, there are choices that everyone must make that determine the course of their whole life. And what you must first know is that you only have one life to live, and perhaps regrettably, no one can say exactly how so great a choice will work its way out in all the details and subsequent steps that follow throughout a lifetime. And each of those subsequent steps in life will in turn entail further situations, events, relationships, and steps that we never could have foreseen. But we'll only discover the life that these future steps bring by actually taking the risk of living and beginning to walk into that new life. That is something of what I said to him. But even though we can never know all these details and situations that life will confront us with and how they will affect us, we can choose certain larger forms into which we will pour all of these specifics in order to conform the details of our lives to the larger image into which we now pour them. Some, for instance, pour the specifics of their lives into their work community, and that shapes their marriage, their family, and them individually into a certain economic and vocational image. Others pour themselves into a political image, and that too will shape every aspect of their lives and relationships accordingly. Others find a spiritual image to do the same thing. For Christians, the new covenant binds them into the corporate image of Christ and his body. And so it doesn't matter what comes their way in regard to the latter. They simply pour it into this covenantal form of Christ's body. And no matter whether it is painful or pleasant, it comes out conforming them to the image of God's Son. So I told Zafir that I hoped when he reached the end that he didn't look back and say, I made the wrong choice. In life we face a few monumental choices that transcend all of our minor choices. What most people are actually asking when they say, how is this going to turn out, is, how is this going to turn out in terms of my self-preservation? This is an instinctive reaction. It comes very naturally. That's why the natural man cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot inherit it. So Paul declared, the spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. The natural man, he said, can't even understand the things of the spirit of God. That's the man that for a Christian must die, you see. Although, of course, everyone is eventually going to die. 
And this natural man is also the instinctive man. Someone recently said about some prominent public personality that he's very intuitive. I said, no, I don't think so. I think he's more instinctive than intuitive. What I was talking about was that his instincts for self-preservation and coming out on top in every dealing with other people, his instincts for one-upmanship and competition were very keen and highly developed. But the predator is not better than its prey simply because it can outstalk the more innocent and vulnerable prey. Few people would consider, for instance, a predator and stalker of children as superior to his prey. So this man of keen instincts may have only been an alpha predator. That's very different than being intuitive or emotionally intelligent. Such instincts for survival are built into us. They come naturally. And we have these instincts of self-preservation because we all know we're going to die, and yet throughout our whole life we fight the reality of the death that we know we face. We even fight it as a simple, indisputable fact of life, mainly by trying to distract ourselves from it. We also fight it by trying to take care of ourselves. Medicine, politics, farming, work, economics, social systems, ethical systems, Every human activity is made to either distract us from death and its subsidiary forms that we encounter in life or else to keep us alive and beyond death's reach. Virtually every discipline has to do with trying to put or keep Humpty Dumpty together, though we know he's had a great fall. And in the end, all the king's horses and all the king's men will never put Humpty together again. But that's what we're all trying to do, at least as a temporary or stopgap measure. Yet what is the greater solution that such measures presuppose and therefore anticipate? For if they're truly only stopgap measures that end when death comes, then they must be anticipating something more. We've had a great fall. And so now we continue in an ongoing process of shattering and breaking, just as Ecclesiastes 12 describes. In short, we're still falling. Everyone knows we're gradually falling to pieces throughout our entire lives. But to talk about it is dismissed as morbid, though why it's not merely realistic, no one can say. So is it merely a verbal ledger domain that becomes another distraction? But we can't really escape the fact that we're decomposing even as we sit here. Our body parts are slowly breaking down. The keepers of the house, the hands and arms, tremble with palsy. The strong men, the legs and knees, bow down. The grinders, the molar teeth, cease because they are few. Those that look through the windows, the eyes, grow dim. The doors, the lips are shut, and so the sound of grinding, chewing, is low. The daughters of song, the ears, are brought low. The almond tree blossoms, the white hair that falls from the bare branch, even though the tree is not leaped out. The golden bowl, the head that served to hold the lamp in the light of truth, is broken. The pitcher, collecting the life blood at the wellspring or fountain, 
one of the heart chambers is shattered. The wheel, the circulatory system, bringing blood back to the heart at the cistern, the other heart chamber, is crushed. The silver cord, the spinal cord, is shattered, perhaps in osteoporosis. All of these things are breaking down, as Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes 12, until an old person drags himself along like a grasshopper in winter. It is a dismal picture for those who have not remembered their Creator in the days of their youth. For what in their life will they now have to look back on with any sense of fulfillment, of meaning, of purpose accomplished, if they have not lived in the plan of their Creator? But we do look back, those among the older of us, who made a decision in the days of our youth, and we are so thankful that we learn to remember the Lord back then because it gave us an entire life of purpose and meaning. We look around and walk about Zion, the city of God that sits on his holy mountain, high and magnificent in its elevation as it rises toward the highest life we can reach for. We see hundreds of thousands coming yearly and rejoicing to see the city of the great king. And those who only heard of the city's glory came to see for themselves. And so many now have seen this wonderful city of our God. We too gaze and marvel at its beauty and know that God himself is in her towers. And as we walk about Zion and then come to stand in the midst of his temple, we think of his great Hesed, his covenant faithfulness, his abiding loving kindness. And we remember how we saw the revelation of his great name unfold to us, now making his praise reach unto the ends of the earth. And today we still walk about Zion and go around her. We count her towers. We consider her ramparts. We go through her palaces and remember how it all came to pass in a community of life filled with purpose. And we know that what we remember as we look back is all so that we might tell the next generation that, as the psalmist declared, this is God, our God, forever and ever. And though we are old and know that we will soon die, we also know that we remembered our Creator in the days of our youth, and that we gave ourselves to him when we were strong. And we remember our beginnings in what locals called the Hell's Kitchen slums of New York. And we marvel and rejoice at where we came from and where he brought us to in this long journey. And we know that as he was with us in our beginnings, back when we remembered him, so will he remember us and be our God forever and guide us to the end. So then, what else could we have lived for? What else could we have given ourselves for that would have been as fulfilling? Make $10 billion? Become president of the United States? As one president personally told us, being president is not all it's cracked up to be. So what else could we have done that would have given such meaning and purpose to our lives as we have now found?
we discovered that the meaning and purpose to life comes from giving ourselves to the one who overcame death, which is what everyone in the world struggles against. Political systems fight it, but they use the fear of it to try to establish their own supremacy. Everywhere you look, people are trying to put Humpty together again and keep him together, holding everything together. We see that this truly must be a great purpose in life because everyone is devoted to it in one form, fashion, or another. But you see, we found the answer. It was revealed to us. So we have given ourselves to that answer, to that purpose, and tried to share it with others. And we say to everyone, not just to Brother Zafir at the turning point in his life, but I've also said it to all of my sons and daughters. You know, you only have one life to live. Just take a look at yours right now. Much more of it is now gone than you ever imagined would be when you were first considering making the great decisions that lay before you. And so what have you accomplished now in terms of living a life full of meaning throughout all those years that you've already used up? Of course, every step involves some risk, so so are you making your decisions on the basis of self-preservation, of natural brute impulses, and avoiding risk, or of distracting yourself from the realities you will one day have to face? This is the way of the predatory animal. This is the way of the beast. This is the way of self-preservation. Is this how you make your decisions? Or do you seek for something that transcends the present circumstance and gives hope of overcoming everything that the whole world struggles against? And what the world is fighting against is, again, death. Political systems promise to protect us from enemies who would plunder and kill us. We give ourselves to such systems even unto death because of the protection they promise us. They promise us security against terrorists and rogue nations, even against robbers, thieves, murderers. It's all a matter of self-preservation, with a good dose of civil religion thrown in so that at least the young will long for heroic status enough to be willing to die on the altar of the sacralized state as it wages war, raining death down on its enemies. So are you going to make your choices on the same basis? If you are, then choosing us is choosing the wrong system because we do not make our choices on that basis, and a house divided against itself cannot stand. Nor can you serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve Caesar and Christ. They cannot both be your Lord. So how will you choose in the sense of your ultimate choices, choices that determine the course of your whole life. What will you choose and how will you go about choosing it? Thank you for listening to this audio message. It is our hope that you have been both challenged and inspired by the Word of God. For other messages and materials by this author, please visit www.homesteadheritage.com.